Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Growing up gay and black in small town Ohio, author Brian Broom learned to hide his sexuality in a family and community where masculinity was everything. He survives an abusive father, poverty, racism, and violence, ending up in Pittsburgh, where he comes to terms with his drug and alcohol dependence, slowly embracing his identity as a queer black man. His new memoir, titled Punch Me Up to the Gods, is being praised by the New York Times as a masterwork. And Brian Broom joins us to talk about it. That's next on Forum, right after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. In his new memoir titled Punch Me Up to the Gods, writer Brian Broom describes growing up as a closeted queer black kid with a violent, angry father in a community where masculinity is the only acceptable path for boys. He escapes his hometown in Warren, Ohio, eventually settling in Pittsburgh in the 1990s, where he comes to terms with his dependence on drugs and alcohol and finally embraces his sexuality and what it means to be a man. The New York Times calls his memoir a masterwork that is, quote, as lucid, heartrending, and on occasion hilarious as it is necessary. And Brian Broom joins us now. Welcome. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, and congratulations on the book. Thank um, you very much. I want to just ask you, first of all, uh, you know, how did you decide to write the book, and, 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 and at what point in your life were you? Well, I mean, I didn't really decide to write the book. Um, uh, I was in rehab, um, when I started to just write stories, um, stories that I thought really had affected my life. So I still haven't decided to write a book, uh, but it's out there. <laughs> um, I, you know, was writing these stories and, uh, I just kept writing them. Eventually, um, I found somebody who would read them and here we are today. So, um, there was no real decision making, but I guess now I'm a writer. I think I read in an interview that you did, maybe with NPR, that you you describe this book as a kind of love letter to black boys, uh, letting them know that you don't have to be this thing the world keeps telling you that you have to be. Uh, say more about that. Well, I think that um, you know masculinity is uh, seen as kind of an essential part of being a male person, um, and within the black community, I think it's even more essential. I think that um, that the evils of racism. Um, kind of make it such that 
black men feel that we have to be more manly than you know the uh, than anybody else, uh, the most masculine out there. And there's nothing wrong with masculinity, like in and of itself. I'm talking about this idea of masculinity that means that you have to be, you know, emotionless and dominant. Um, and I think it causes great harm, not only to um, men, but also to women. And what, what is the connection with racism? Is it uh, to sort of harden kids up to survive in a world with racism? And of course, historically, uh, much worse than racism, slavery, Jim Crow, and all the rest. Absolutely. I think that um, there is a direct connection there because uh, if you've been beaten down, you know, uh, historically, you feel the need uh, to prove to everybody that you are stronger. And I think that um, black children go through this very early. You know, we have parents who want to toughen us up for the world, but um, oftentimes the whole child isn't taken into consideration when that toughening up process begins. And I think that's what the book kind of addresses. Well, and early in the book, you talk about toughening up. I mean, you're, you're really getting uh, hit uh, by your father uh, to the point yeah. where I think you say you, you actually, your, your vision goes out for a minute. I mean, you're getting hit in the head and the chest and you know, talk about your father, and, and he, he, he had been a steel worker. I think he was laid off. Um, how did his experience shape the way he looked at masculinity, do you think? Um, I think that my father, you know, comes from a father that was just like he was. I mean, and in a lot of ways, worse. Um, this idea, uh, you know, and he was, you know, he was a simple man. He was a, a blue-collar, steel-working man, and when... Um, the steel industry started to shut down and he lost his job. He really felt as if he had no identity. This is a man um, who only made it to sixth grade. So he didn't know what else to do. And in that sort of like identityless space, he started to become more and more uh, rigid and more and more physically uh, violent um, because he didn't really know his place. And uh, you know, he didn't feel like he was head of household anymore. He didn't know what to do about that. So he just sort of doubled down on being manly. And I also think at the time he was uh, very depressed and didn't know how to process that as well. Hmm. I want to ask you to read uh, a little bit from the book. And uh, if you could, just before you do that, just sort of set it up. Uh, what are we about to hear? Sure. Um, this is, comes early in the book. Um, it is taking place just after I was punished by my father. I think that's a good enough setup. Um, when I was a boy, I used to sit on the back steps of our house after a butt whooping because afterward I was always commanded not to leave our yard. My father would wander out after a long while with his head down in the same hands he just used to whoop my ass, shoved deeply into his pockets. Instead of letting the screen door slam as he usually did, he would close it carefully. He knew he had let his temper get the best of him, and so he would come out weighed down by a remorse he was unable to express with words. He'd just sit down next to me and quietly look off into the distance. He'd fish out of his pocket a Winston and place it between his lips, use both hands to light it, and then exhale a thick cloud of ivory smoke. For a little while, he and I would share a silence that was only occasionally broken up by my hiccuping sobs and sharp intakes of air. Sometimes he would come out bearing gifts, a popsicle or a candy bar that he would hand to me wordlessly while still looking out onto the backyard. And we'd sit there until he couldn't listen to my sopping, wet whimpering any longer. And he'd command me suddenly as if he'd just woken out of a dream, stop crying. 
you done cried enough. Stop crying right now. I remember how my own father looked at me as if I were leaking gasoline and about to set the whole concept of black manliness on fire. Stop crying. Be a man. And this is all happening, of course, as you, as a young boy in rural Ohio, small town Ohio, uh, are, you know, beginning to realize that you're different, uh, that you're attracted to boys. Um, How aware do you think your father was and how did that figure in to these lessons about masculinity, this toughening up that was happening? How connected? I don't think my father... I don't think my father ever could have conceived that he could have produced a gay, ch- a gay boy. I don't, I don't know. I think he just knew that I was weird. Um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't take to the things that he thought I should be taking to sports. And, um, you know, I spent an inordinate amount of time you know, playing with girls. Um, I think he just thought I was weird. And what he had to do was to just shake the weirdness out of me. Um, and he did that in myriad ways, you know, Hmm. Um, he would send me down the street to play with, you know, this little boy who, uh, you know, was, was my age, but who just would spend the day beating the crap out of me. Um, so I think that, uh, I don't think my father could have conceived that I was queer, but I think he just thought if he, if he hit me just right, you know, that it would change me. And I think I began to believe that as well, you know? Hmm. So, you know, I thought that these punishments were things that I deserved. Um, for being weird, for being unmanly, for being, um, you know, just a super, you know, being bookish, you know, all these things were frowned upon. Um, and I was all of the things that I wasn't supposed to. Mm. They were, as you described them, girly things, even just reading and drawing, right? Yeah, they weren't even girly. You you think back on them and it's ridiculous, you know, like reading is girly. I mean, there were a lot of and there still are a lot of restrictions. You know, there are a lot of restrictions on manliness in general, but I think they're even more strict. You know, with uh, black men, um, you know, just little things like curiosity, doing well in school. Um, mm. You know, um, you know, the the list was endless, and I couldn't wrap my head around it, and I still haven't been able to wrap my head around. It. Mm. We're talking uh, with the author Brian Broom about his new memoir. It's titled Punch Me Up to the Gods. And Brian, in the book, you, you write, and I'm quoting here, there is no greater crime, no, no crime greater than a black man acting like a girl. What is it about feminine or non-masculine men that infuriates uh, people like your father, do you think? I think that homophobia and misogyny are really, you know, kissing cousins. Um, I think that they are born of the same thing. This, and I don't know why, but it's, it really is just this hatred for tenderness and softness. Um, I don't know why you know, we've come up with this idea that eschewing those uh, natural human emotions is some sort of you know, uh, 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 poison. I have no idea. Um, but I know that I was surrounded by it, you know. Um, crying, feeling bad, being depressed. It always had to be this um, front of being tough or aloof, um, you know, cool. Mm. Well, and in fact, you, uh, the, the chapters of the book are framed around a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks called We Real Cool, uh, which was written, I think, in the early 60s, kind of an ode to masculinity. Talk about your uh, adopting that as a way to structure the book. I... You know, I came to that poem pretty late. Um, you know, like you said, it's been around since the 60s. I think I 
I read it, you know, maybe you know, um, a few few months uh, after I started the book. And when I read it, you know, I don't think Gwendolyn Brooks wrote it as an ode to masculinity. I think she just wrote about what she saw. She the poem is about you know her walking down the street in Chicago and looking into basically a bar and seeing um, seven really young boys up to you know doing some pretty manly stuff. Um, and when I read that poem, I thought. Uh, you know, this is about, this is about the stuff that I faced my whole life. You know, you know, we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, those kinds of masculine, you know, ideas. Um, these are the things I've been fighting against. So I immediately thought it was kind of this treatise, this mini treatise, um, about black masculinity. Hmm. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I have to use this, I have to use this somehow. And then I researched it a little bit and I found out that the one and only bell hooks, um, also used the poem um, in her book, We Real Cool, uh, Black Men and Masculinity. So I wasn't the first to come up with it, even though I thought it was for a few days. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, I, I thought I could tell a story about each one of these lines. I could tell probably two or three stories um, about each one of these lines. So um, I thought I'm going to try to hang my book off the bones of her, her poem. And uh, it it worked out well. Hmm. You uh, you say maybe it, it, well. You know what? I hear the music, <laughs> so that means we're going to take a break. And I think the question <laughs> I was going to ask you is was more you would require more than a thirty second answer. So why don't you hold on? I'll bring uh, bring that back up when we return, and we're going to continue our conversation with Brian Broom. His new memoir is titled "Punch Me Up to the Gods." We'd love to hear from you. Have you adjusted your perceptions? of masculinity over time. How have you navigated the notion of what it means to be a man? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Much more to come with Brian Broom. Stick around. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here. In this hour, we're talking with writer Brian Broom about his new memoir. It's titled Punch Me Up to the Gods. If you'd like to join us, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can send us a note, question, or comment on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I want to ask you, Brian, about the title of the book, which is so... Um, unusual and so provocative, I guess, or uh, if that's the right word, punch me up to the gods. And reading a bit from the book, you write, any black boy who did not signify how manly he was at all deserved to be punched back up to God, to be remade, reshaped. Um, is, that a, is that a prevalent notion? And, and where did that phrase come from exactly? Well, it's kind of a 
a rewording of you know that old standby you know that parents would say to their kids i brought you into this world i'll take you out um i don't know if your parents said that but yeah <laughs> no they did um, not <laughs> <laughs> um it was kind of this jokey threat that you know parents would would make when i was a kid um and it's kind of a uh, a rewording of that you know uh it's something that my you know my father used to say you know um he was big on you know um the patriarchal god um and you know one of his uh i think his tenets was like you know if you if you continue to behave this way i will send you back um to god and you know the title of the book i think is kind of a challenge you know go ahead punch me you know i'm gonna keep coming back um so it's kind of a um you know, a defiant uh, cry, I think. Uh, yeah. Punch me up to the gods. I don't care. I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the a common experience, you know, irrespective of race or socioeconomic status, uh, of coming out or, or even not even coming out, but just becoming aware of your sexuality is the tendency, to, you, you know, I, I felt this way. You knew, you knew you had to hide it. You knew it was something to be ashamed of or you thought it was. Um, as, and in spite of that, you, you sort of tested the boundaries a little bit. I mean, you write, there's that one scene where you're at the shopping mall with your mother and you kind of wander off to the women's clothing, the girls clothing section, and you find a shirt that is maybe just masculine enough to pass as a boy's shirt and you throw it in the shopping cart and your mother says, no, no, this is, this is pink. (laughs) <laughs> which you point out, it's actually more like carnation, but, um, <laughs> w- w- so what was it knowing that, you know, you, you could be punched back up to the gods to be remade. What was it that made you keep testing the boundaries? I think that, you know, in that moment, I didn't really know I was testing anything. I really actually thought that this pink shirt was going to, you know, was going to pass muster. Um, you know, and I don't know that I, I, pushed or tested anything i was just being me um or trying to be as me as i could without completely hiding myself um and you know i saw that pretty pink shirt and i just had to have it um (laughs) i think it was a moment of just me uh just taking over you know um you should have seen it it was beautiful it was a beautiful shirt (laughs) um And, you know, I didn't know that I was te- in that moment. I didn't know that I was testing anything until my mother made me aware that I was testing hmm. things. Hmm. You know, this is a pink shirt. Boys don't wear pink, which, you know, also is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, and in that moment, I, I thought she's really, really ashamed of me now. I've really done it. Like, you know, wanting this shirt and insisting that she buy it for me has really just broken my mother. And Hmm. I think after that moment, um, you know, I was much more aware of what I did and, you know, what I wore and how I stood and walked and like, you know, just everything about me. I was just hyper conscious of everything that I did, trying not to break these rules that I didn't know. I didn't know any of them. I didn't Hmm. understand any. Your mom is still alive, and you thank her in the acknowledgments, saying you owe her everything. Um, what, what did she do for you? Uh, did she? It sounds seems like she was prote- wanting to protect you from yourself in a way, uh, but also you know not wanting to reject you. Well, yeah, I do owe her everything, and she wholeheartedly agrees. Um, <laughs> my mother, you know, I think that for a very long time. 
um, I did not see my mother as a person, you know. And when I say that, I mean, you know, she she has a, a you know a backstory before she actually became my mother. You know, she was a, a young woman and she had dreams and hopes, and you know, and ended up pretty much sacrificing all of those um, to do what she thought that she could do. Um, I think that she did a lot to try to protect me. Some of the things didn't, you know, she was she was um, uh, a stern woman. You know, she wasn't loving and caring and huggy and kissy and, and those kinds of things. But, you know, what she did, I realize now, you know, in retrospect, she did to try to protect me, um, you know, to protect me from, you know, the neighborhood uh, boys and the people at school and my father at times, you know, yeah. um, because and I think she was confused as well. Like, What is this child that I have on my hands? I have no idea what to do with it, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to protect it with everything that I have. Um, yeah. It didn't always look like protection. You know, sometimes it looked harsh, but now that I'm an adult, um, I can look back and see all the things that she did, all the people she fought off, you know, all the things that, um, you know, she told me that were for my own good because she was terrified hmm. of, you know, A, having a black child in the world, which I think all black parents are afraid of sending their children out into this culture, and B, having just a weird black boy, you know. <laughs> Um, it was double, the, you know, the anxiety I think I caused her. So, yeah, I think I do owe her a great deal. Yeah. Well, you also thank your dad in the acknowledgments, uh, saying that he, quote, taught me many lessons he didn't even know he was teaching. Like what? I think that he taught me, you know, just one of the points that I'm trying to stress in the book. I think that my father um, had unaddressed mental health issues. Um, I think that he was so caught up in this idea of being, you know, a man to the exclusion of all other things that he did not enjoy his life. Um, I watched him not enjoy his life. Um, I think that him not enjoying his life was the reason for his illness. Um, I, he taught me those things without necessarily teaching me those things, you know, without saying, hmm. you know, you should live your truth because just watching him um, in his depression, in his anxiety, in his violence at times. Um, again, this is all in retrospect. I look back and I think I don't want to be like that. You know, I don't want to be um, this m- miserable person who um, is really just you know a contagion for for misery, um, spreading it around. Um, that's what he did, and that's what he taught unwittingly. Well, and you know the the descriptions. It's obviously very tough, violent. Was it was it tough love or was it just tough? I think it was both. I think that my father loved me. You know, a lot of people I think read the book and they want to cast him as a villain because he was physical um, with his children. But I just and you know I just think he really didn't know how else to be. He hadn't learned anything else. You don't know what you don't know, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, in his mind, this is the way to correct children so that they, you know, my father used to say, you know, I'd rather kill you myself than have white people do it. Huh. Um, and I think he meant that, <laughs> you know, he had been affected by uh, racism, you know, for his whole life. He saw his father affected by racism. His father was a very, very, you know, violent um, man. Um, and so I just think he didn't know any other way. But at the end of the day, you know, and people 
um, disagree with me on this. Um, even though he was hitting me a lot, I think he really did love me and thought this was the way to show it, mm-hmm. um, to make sure that I was safe. It's a very twisted kind of love, but you know, um, at the end of the day, it was, it was still love. Um, and I loved him as well. Hmm. Talking with Brian Broom about his book, Punch Me Up to the Gods. And we're going to bring in some listeners now. Give us a call if you'd like to join us, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And let's go to San Jose. Dan, you're first. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Sure. I wanted to say... Recently, you know, I raised a son, and I found that uh, a group of boys in their teens is considered a gang. There's a kind of a swing as it swings back and forth between, you know, neglecting one group and neglecting another, rather than keeping it all going. There's been a big push for STEM for girls, and there's really no push for boys. Um, and there's been sort of a anti-macho-ness in society if you're if you're so basically maleness is is a vilified circumstance in some uh political arenas and um you know it's it's something where i think we shouldn't take away from women as they are gaining but also we couldn't we 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 need to keep it going on all levels um the boy scouts has a tarnished image now that was where Little boys became men. I, I'm not talking physically, sexually. I mean, the, the, the social mores and the, the types of things that were different between boys and girls. Hmm. At that point was a separation and a development that occurred that no longer occurs. Hmm. Um, it's all about being sensitive and crying, and, oh. but there's nothing supporting the macho-ness of our DNA. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, and, and Brian, uh, there is this phrase toxic masculinity, uh, which uh, implies, you know, as Dan is saying, that uh, you, know, you can be too male, you know, uh, and, and you have to be softer. What are, what are your thoughts about that, uh, that dichotomy? Well, I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with this idea of masculinity. I, what I think is strange is that we, is that the qualities that are called masculine are gendered at all. You know, self-reliance is not gender specific. You know, strength is not gender specific. Um, Taking care of your family is not gender specific. Um, These are just qualities. They are not male qualities. I know a lot of women who exhibit these same qualities. So I get confused when we start talking about, you know, you know, this being a man, because it's also being a woman. It's also, you know, it's being a human being. These qualities that we, we gender, um, you know, and say that they're male qualities, women have been exhibiting these same qualities since time immemorial. Hmm. So what I, the idea of masculinity that I think has become corrupted is this idea of dominance. You know, I cannot be strong until, unless somebody else is on their knees. Um, you know, I need to have dominion over women. I need to be the head of the household. I need to be a taskmaster with my children. This idea of dominance is what I take issue with, you know, masculinity, you know, does a lot of things. It functions this, you know, and I use the word masculinity, you know, just because there really is no other word. You know, um, um, it has function in society, you know, 
strength and honor and all these things that we associate with men, those things have a function. They're not specific to men. Um, and sensitivity and kindness and softness and you know sadness and, and all these things are not specific to women. You know, it's the barrier that we put up between these things with which I take issue, mm-hmm. not one or the other. Yeah. Um, you, the book, of course, mostly it's a memoirs and it focuses mostly on your experience as a, a boy and a young man and, 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 a, and an adult man as well. Is there a version of what you're describing that black boys are put through that women go through? What's the what's the female version of that? I think women are, you know, I mean, there's this idea of slut shaming, you know, I've never been a woman. I've never had the experience of a woman. I, you know, I don't know. I can't speak to a woman's experience uh, with any authority. But, you know, I think that women are put through paces as well, you know, um, uh, with regard to their bodies, um, you know, what they can and can't show and what's, you know, what's slutty and what's not slutty, you know, you know, don't all these weird sort of uh, uh, mores that we attach to women's bodies. But, you know, boys' bodies are also policed um, in the same way. Um, they don't have the same effect. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, no, no man is ever going to be punished for being, you know, too masculine. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think women get punished a lot uh, because of this idea of femininity, this idea that they're hysterical, this idea that they're you know, they can't be too sexual or they can't be. Um, uh, you know, not sexual or they're approved. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, prescriptions that we throw at people's bodies that I find, you know, confounding. Hmm. I'm going to go back to the phones. And again, the, the number, if you want to talk to or ask a question of Brian Broom, the number is 866-733-6786. And let's go to Lee in Oakland. You're next. Hey, good morning. Thank you for writing this book. Everything you've been saying is really resonating for me. Um, I uh, called in because when I was 21, I transitioned from female to male. I'm a trans man now uh, and have been for 21 years. But at the time, I was working with young men at a teen center. And um, I just found myself looking at them, and we were all looking around for male role models. Um, and I really came to empathize that experience being a young man in this society. If you didn't have any male role model in your own personal life or orbit, you started to look to music videos or the media or, you know, whatever was out there. And, and I, I saw myself and these kids grasping, looking, you know, for role models. My best role models were butch lesbians on (laughs) masculinity and chivalry, um, you know. And so I just, I came to really empathize with that experience of just, if you didn't have a, a strong father figure or uncle or grandpa or somebody who could teach you that you didn't have to subscribe to a lot of these notions, you could, you could, um, be on a different part of the continuum of masculinity then you were really lost. You didn't have resources and, and you had to kind of make it up and to be so young in the world, making it up, but having like a man's body, like a man boy body. Right. And then what all that comes with it, the, you know, if you're of color, hmm. that's going to come with police, you know, scrutiny and, 
um, things that these young men are not prepared for if they don't have somebody and society's not doing it right. So um, hmm. I just I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, no, Lee, thank you so much for the call. And you know, Brian, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, just some of the the things that I see on TV. I mean, RuPaul now is a mainstream performer. RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, there's the FX series Pose. Uh, with Billy Porter telling, you know, tells the story of the ball scene in New York City in the 80s and 90s. And then I don't know if you saw Saturday Night Live last weekend, but uh, <laughs> Lil Nas X, I mean, his 22 years old, uh, first openly queer black artist to win a Country Music Association Award. And that was quite a couple of songs and performances that he gave on SNL last Saturday night. If you, if you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. Um, I mean, there are a lot of different... Um, role models, or at least people. When I was growing up, it was like Paul Lind on Hollywood Squares and Liberace. You know, that was about it. I mean, there's a lot more variety now. There absolutely is. And don't you dare say anything bad about Paul Lind. He's an <laughs> icon. Although I heard he was nasty as a person. But oh, I heard some rumors about Paul Lind as well. But we can talk about that. Off <laughs> okay. Um, um, no, I mean, I think it's great that you know um, there are shows like Pose, RuPaul's Drag Race, and Lil Nas X, it's really strange, um, you know, when I first, uh, you know, I didn't see him on Saturday Night Live because I, I can't stay up that late, but um, I, when I saw his video, there's a video uh, out Montero where he's uh, lap dancing, you know, on the devil and like, mm. you know, he's being very, very proud and, and flamboyant. And I, I shut down. I, I, I was like, wow, you know, I, um, I, I got uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, Why? And I got uncomfortable. I got uncomfortable because that old shame, you know, where that was put in me is still there, you know, somewhere, you know, as much as I ran rave, you know, about all these things, like that old shame is still within yeah. me. And I had to recognize that yeah. and know that, you know, it's, it's, it's still a problem and it's still a problem in the, in the world. All right. We're going to take a short break. Come back with Brian Broom. And again, if you'd like to join us, give us a ring, 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. or at KQED Forum. Or if you like, email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer talking with writer Brian Broom about his new memoir. It's titled Punch Me Up to the Gods, his story of growing up as a queer black kid in rural Ohio and moving to Pittsburgh, where you live now, Brian. Uh, and that was not an easy, you know, sometimes I think, uh, you know, gay kids, when they get away from their hometowns, and they, they finally sort of bloom, they blossom. Uh, you had a kind of a, it was kind of a rough transition for you in Pittsburgh. It was, you know, I, I definitely knew that I had to get out of my hometown. I knew that if I stayed there, you know, it wouldn't be good for me. But, um, you know, in trying to come out uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, I, I ran into some obstacles. But, you know, the first of which was, you know, I, when I found, you know, alcohol and, and drugs, I was immediately, you know, I thought this is this. I found it because, um, you know, alcohol immediately quieted my anxiety. 
um, you know, and I fell into a lot of like, um, you know, frequent sex and, you know, it was, it was a rocky time. Um, but you know, there would be no book without, <laughs> you know, with, without those stories. So, you know, I look back on them once again and I, you know, I have some wisdom. I know that they were necessary to make me the person that I am now. Hmm. It seemed like in some ways the, the cocaine, as you describe it, gave you the confidence. It was maybe it was false confidence, but it nonetheless, it gave you confidence. Absolutely. I mean, cocaine, um, you know, makes you feel beautiful. I'm not supposed to say that in, you know, in recovery, but it's a false, it's a false confidence. Um, it's a false duty. It's, you know, everything about it is, is, is fake. You know, you have, uh, these rapid fire conversations with people where nobody's listening to anybody. Um, but it became a daily, um, ritual until it became a necessary ritual until it became just all consuming. Um, so yeah, I got hooked pretty quick and I stayed that way for a very long time. Yeah. What was the moment where you, you thought, I, I just have to, I have to get a, get a, get a hold of this. I have to, I have to stop. I, um, I never had a moment like that. <laughs> um, my, my friends, uh, you know, around me, um, I was engaging in increasingly dangerous behavior. Um, you know, I woke up in a doghouse once, like literally a, a mm. doghouse, uh, in somebody's backyard. And I was relaying these stories like they were funny. And a friend of mine finally said, you know, these stories that you tell are not funny. You know, you're yeah. a black man and you're, you're waking up in somebody's, you know, backyard, you know, and they could have just shot you and nobody, nobody would blame the person for shooting. Mm. Um, and I was issued, you know, a few ultimatums, like either you go to rehab um, and, you know, get clean, or we're just not going to be associating with you anymore because you're going to die. Um, and when I got to rehab, I still didn't think I had a problem. Hmm. Um, you know, my, my, uh, uh, my thought was I'll just go, you know, I'll just go for a week, just shut everybody up. But, you know, while there, you know, and detoxing and, um, you know, getting a clearer head, I realized that I really did have a, a serious problem. Um, and I started to listen to you know, the counselors, um, and I started hearing a lot of stories that sounded very familiar to me. Um, so I took it seriously. I was there, um, for a month and while there, I was just writing these, these stories. Hmm. And you're still clean and sober. I am for, um, eight and a half years now. Wow. How hard is that? You know, it's, it's you know, I wake up every morning and I say, the first thing I say is I'm not going to use today. Um, and that just sort of sets the tone for the day. Like as soon as I open my eyes, I say it to the ceiling, like, I'm not going to use today. And then I get out of bed. Um, there are days when I feel temptation. You know, there are days when that little addict voice in the, in the, in the back of your mind says, you know, if you just take a little drink, nobody will know, you know, just don't tell anybody. And you have to kind of tamp that down. Um, it is, you know, uh, it is a daily thing when people talk about, you know, that old sort of cliche one day at a time, like that's the truth. Um, you know, and right now I've done eight and a half years, like literally one day at a time, just trying to get through the day. Some days it's not a struggle at all. I don't think about it, but there are days that are, there are days that are darker than others. Yeah. How has it changed the kinds of people you hang out with your friends, your circle of friends? My, oh, my friends are so boring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just boring. Um, no, like, you know, 
I, I, at this point, I have friends in my life who have never seen me high, which blows my mind. Um, because you know, the group of friends that I, that I hung out with previously, I mean, that's, that's all we did. Um, I, I know, um, a lot of really wonderful people, you know, I don't, and they are boring and that's exactly what I need. <laughs> you know, I need, uh, to sit and go to a coffee shop and talk about books or just, you know, um, uh, just hang out and go for a walk. Like these are the things that I, it's, um, it's changed. And also all those friends that I used to, you know, party with all the time, they're, they're kind of right now too. They have kids and mm-hmm. mortgages and, <laughs> you know, debt. so it all comes around in debt. It all comes around. And around. Yeah. But I still have, you know, some of those people are still in my life as well. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones. And again, it's 866-733-6786 uh, or Facebook and Twitter. We're at KQED forum. And let's go to Zach in San Francisco. Hello. First of all, I want to give a quick shout out to your fellow Pittsburgh author, Damon Young, who has an excellent yes. chapter in his most recent memoir, trying to unpack the conflation between hardness, maleness, and straightness. Really, really great, great chapter. I'm sure you know of him already. Uh, thank you. My question is about how to split the difference. How, what are your thoughts on how to allow people to be their authentic selves while simultaneously preparing them for a world hmm. which won't necessarily do that? Yeah, you need um, to have some armor. Yeah. You know, I've I've said this before, you know, the armor for black children is necessary. Um and I want to also say that I do not have children. Um I don't anticipate having children. I don't know what it's like to raise a child, but my my um request is is about that armor. You know, before you put it on your child, you know, before you tell them about the harshness of of um Uh, of American culture, like learn who the child is. You know, I think that um, where my parents erred was they were trying to put the armor on me before, you know, they actually knew who I was as a person or how I was. I think, you know, the armor better suits when you know who's wearing it. So I think the, the, the balance is struck when you actually really have an intimate knowledge of the child. Um, and then after that, you know, try to prepare them for, for the harshness of the world. Again, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't know uh, what it's like to send, you know, a piece of yourself out into the world, but I would hope that, you know, um, that armor is applied in, after, you know, you get a, a really in-depth knowledge of, the, of who you're dealing with. Hmm. Zach, is that something you've uh, tried to navigate, finding that middle ground? Yeah, I, I also don't have kids, but I, I teach college students, so it's a constant place of how do we encourage conversations about stuff like this, but how do, we, how do we also be responsible about not giving them false viewpoints about what the world is actually like once they leave an educational environment? Yeah. Right. Well, well thanks for sharing that. Appreciate it, Zach. Uh, let's go to Ian in San Jose. You're next. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, my question my experience, rather, I grew up in rural Ohio as well. You know, I'm a gay trans guy, and I had a sense of this from a pretty young age. And I just kind of figured, I'm not going to do this in Ohio. I've seen how queer kids are treated. I can't do this. Yet. So when I was 18, I moved to Berkeley, transitioned, everything's been fine. I still feel a bit of residual guilt about having left, you know, kids who have a similar experience to me. Kids who don't have these role models, kids who don't see success stories of, oh, you can be queer, you can have a good time. How do you balance 
you know, putting yourself in an environment which is good for you, conducive to your growth, good for your mental health, but also not feeling like you're abandoning people who really could use people like you in their lives. Oh, interesting. Brian, a little hard to understand in there, but uh, could you make that out? He's trying to, how do you, how do you strike that balance again by, uh, you know, having fun, having a full life, but also, you know, not leaving behind the people who, you know, would like to have you in their lives and who would benefit from having you in their lives. Um, are we talking about in terms of like drugs and alcohol or, or just who I used to be or, um, Ian, just advice to rural, rural queers for a better queers. way to put it. Yeah. Advice to rural queers. Oh, oh my, <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, Ian, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I don't know. You know, I, I left my rural, my little town environment and I just never looked back. Um, and I'm a bad person to ask this question because I have a, I have a, I have a prejudice. Um, you know, I, I don't ever want to live in a small town again or a rural setting again. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how I would navigate that. Um, I, I would feel isolated. Um, you know, when I moved to Pittsburgh, it was, it was probably, it was a really good choice for me. Um, but I don't know what it would be like to, to, you know, uh, to be of rural, rural queers. Um, and I just don't have a really good answer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And, you know, there've been some great movies about, uh, growing up queer or different, you know, in rural parts of the country. Uh, boys don't cry, for example, uh, is, is just one of many. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think there's, there's an sort of an assumption in this country. I think that, well, you know, gay rights, that battle's over, you know, that's been won. And yeah, if you talk to people who, even if they have like you move to a city, those experiences that you have as a kid or a young man or young woman, uh, in those places where you're, you face a lot of hostility. I mean, that doesn't leave you easily, does it? Absolutely. You know, um, I think that the only thing that I can suggest for rural queers is just to try to find some kind of community, you know, where you are. Um, and then hold those people close, you know, um, bring them over to the house, you know, go to movies, just, just hold the, the people that accept you close. And that really, you know, that holds no matter where you are, whether you're, you know, um, in Tuscaloosa or in the middle of Manhattan, like those, um, make sure you find those people who really have your best interest at heart, who really have your mental health, um, um, in mind, uh, when they address you and, and then just you know, hold on to those people for dear life. Yeah. Ian, thanks for the call. Here's some uh, listener comments. Callie writes, my oldest child, 17, assigned male at birth, recently came out as non-binary, and that has completely changed my thoughts around the constructs of gender. You really start seeing how gender is a social construct in so many ways that we even in this modern society have been trained in and bought into. And uh, Thad writes, I've always been a crybaby. As a kid, it caused me problems, but in adulthood, it has allowed me to express my emotions freely, often surprising other men, particularly when I was in phenomenal physical condition, seeing someone who was built like a welterweight boxer blubbering about one thing or another really got people's attention. I think suppression in one form or another is one of the great evils of our society. The only way to combat it is by refusing to suppress it. And Brian, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, this this little boy, Tuan, uh, which is short for Antoine, who uh, appears early in the book and then throughout the book. And you 
see him and his father, I think, initially at a bus stop, and then you get on the bus with them, and you see him crying sort of inconsolably and his father yelling at him, telling him to stop crying, to be a man. I mean, is that a, a little version of Brian? Absolutely. You know, when I saw that exchange, um, you know, I saw them initially at the bus stop um, and, this, uh, you know, the, the, the little boy falls over and just smacks his head on the, you know, on the pavement um, and his father doesn't address the wound. He just tells, you know, a toddler, you know, be a man, stop crying, you know, and I thought I have to, I have to watch them, <laughs> you know, like a, like a complete creep, you know, <laughs> um, I, I sat near them and I, I just watched their interactions and, you know, it reminded me so much, not just of myself and my father, but, you know, a lot of my young interactions, you know, this idea that, you know, I, I used to sit with my legs crossed as a, as a boy. And then, you know, people would tell me to uncross my legs, you know, just these little weird in, you know, unbelievably stupid <laughs> things, you know, these prescriptions on the body, you know? So, um, I saw that with him and, uh, with Juan and his father. And I just, I just watched the ways in which his father was teaching him what not to do. Mm-hmm. You know, all mm-hmm. these things that you cannot do. You yeah. know, it wasn't teaching him how to be, you know, um, it, it wasn't like proactive information. It was, it was information of what not to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. these are the things you cannot do and you may as well learn them. young. Yeah. And you, you, and you end the book with a letter to him, uh, in hopes that maybe he'll read it. Uh, he would be how old now? Oh gosh. <laughs> I think he maybe would be like, I mean, he, he can be much older than he was that, that, um, you know, the Twan story in the book came in, uh, later. So he would probably be about two years older, three years older than he was. So still a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. Much like gender time is a construct for me as well. So I don't ever know what is happening when, um, <laughs> so he, I think he would be like, you know, I think at the time he was probably two or three. So maybe he's probably like five or six now yeah yeah, um, yeah so that letter is meant for way in the future i hope the book's still out there yeah you know, when, Would, when wouldn't it be wild it. wouldn't it be wild if he recognizes himself and contacts you that would be why that would be i would be ready to just lay down and die that would be just <laughs> i'd be like okay life well lived bye yeah, everybody yeah, you know yeah um but yeah that would be amazing but i did see um myself in him i did see you know a lot of other black boys you know i just literally he became symbolic um for so many uh things and issues that i had been thinking about for for my whole life few other comments I'll sneak in here. We're getting to the end of the hour, but Kai tweets, really interesting insight on the value of unintentionally teaching your child what not to be. Made me realize several of my habits are a result of my dad's counterexample, and I'm oddly thankful for it. And then another listener writes, I hypothesize the reason that men train their sons to be masculine is based on fear for their survival. I think this would be especially true for black families who've been subjected to so much trauma. And uh, that, that, that's certainly very uh, easily understood for sure. Um, I want to ask you, Brian, the, there's a lot of pain in this book. Uh, there is addiction. There's poverty. There's racism. There's homophobia. There's also humor, a lot of humor. I mean, I found myself laughing out loud uh, several times. Um, I'm wondering, what did it do for you to write this book? Was it, you know, healing in some way? 
Uh, yeah, I actually, I absolutely think that this book was a healing journey for me. There was a, a lot of uh, things in the book that I thought I shouldn't put this in this book, <laughs> you know, but um, one of the things that they tell you in recovery is that you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, I thought, well, I'm just going to put it all out there, you know, or a lot of it out there. Um, and then it'll be out there and then I don't have to hide from it anymore. Um, I think that the book for, you know, I, I want to become a better person. You know, when I was in active addiction, I was not a good person. Um, you know, lied, cheat, stole, like all the things, you know, um, that go with being an addict. And so I wrote the book. I started the book in rehab because I thought I want to be better. Like, and so I want to look these stories in the face and know what happened um, so that I will never be the person that I once was. Yeah. The book is called Punch Me Up to the Gods. Brian Room, thank you so much for, for writing the book and, and coming on today to talk about it. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Great. Forum is produced by Tina Lauerberg, Crystal Consol, Grace Wan, Christopher Beal. Our acting senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. Stick around for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim and have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.